Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 10th, 2021, and uh, I'm speaking to you, as always, from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. It's a brisk, sunny, slightly wintry day. Uh, yesterday, I was thrilled that we had the ABC correspondent, best-selling writer Jonathan Carl on the show, talking about his new book, Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show. Um, and uh, one of the characters that came up in our in my conversation with uh, with John was the the American general, Mark Miley, you can see his image if you're watching here, a, a square-shaped, uh, jowly man uh, who really uh, appears as if he could have, uh, he, he took Trump on, but he appears as if he could have walked out of Dr. Strangelove. He really reminds me of uh, General Curtis LeMay, the uh, the imaginary uh, figure in Dr. Strangelove, this crazy military figure. And speaking of Strangelove, I'm thrilled that we have today David Mikic, um, an authority both on American film and writing, whose latest book is Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker, um, and of course, uh, one of Kubrick's greatest films was uh, Dr. Strangelove. Uh, David, talk to me a little bit about Strangelove. Is it his greatest film? It is in my mind, only because I love Strangelove so much. It's a wild film, an incredible film. And in fact, I, I think of Kubrick as having made a trilogy of movies in the 60s um, and very beginning of the 70s, that uh, the three movies were like nothing else that had been done before. Strange Love is the first is the first one. It came out in 1964, beginning of 64. It was actually uh, scheduled for release on the day of, which turned out to be the day of the JFK assassination. So it was postponed to January of 64. And then we have 2001, A Space Odyssey in 1968, equally revolutionary film. And then finally, uh, Clockwork Orange in 71. And, you know, an utter shocker. Nothing at all like that had ever been done before. But the first one was Dr. Strangelove. And, um, uh, you know, the movie, uh, I mean, it had many enormous fans, including Elvis, by the way, who uh, uh, was on record as saying he enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, in its sheer kind of over-the-top satire, it's real sort of Rabelaisian satire. And so, so Kubrick is not merely, you know, making fun of the military-industrial complex, but he's really showing us the true madness of all of these plans for nuclear war. He, uh, uh, Kubrick got to know Herman Kahn, who was the main, one of the main theorists of, uh, of nuclear war, and uh, Herman Kahn, who worked for the Rand Corporation, like fascinating, very complex figure, uh, very funny man as well. So Herman Kahn had uh, written a book about how to survive nuclear war and how to bounce back from it. Uh, uh, so when you see uh, George C. Scott as General Turgidson, 
in uh, Dr. Strangelove gripping a book uh, that the title of the book is, uh, is, uh, um, is about mega deaths, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the results of nuclear war in mega deaths. And uh, he says something like, you know, we might lose 5 million, 10 million, might get our hair must. So that, that's something real, you know, that came from these nuclear theorists. Uh, the, the, the man you mentioned as modeled on a real general, Curtis LeMay, uh, the, this is uh, Jack D. Ripper, played by Sterling Hayden. By the way, both Sterling Hayden and George C. Scott were ex-Marines, you know, so they knew the military uh, point of view from the inside out. Um, uh, Jack D. Ripper, of course, is the uh, conspiracy theorist who thinks that thinks that uh, the commies are uh, are poisoning the water, uh, and uh, 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 you know, there's various other species of craziness. But he's this sort of rock solid, you know, testosterone fueled dinosaur who's, you know, ready to uh, ready to ready for world annihilation, ready for world annihilation. As and, we all are, David. Um, uh, one of the, the curious ironies I get at the, at the heart of your book, Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker, is the imprint that this book appeared and its subtitle, American Filmmaker suggests exactly that, an American filmmaker. But it appears in a Yale University series on, uh, what is it? Is it Jewish? Not Yale Jewish Jew, writers, yeah, but Jew uh, basically great Jews, right? You could put it that way. <laughs> I mean, uh, Yale Jewish what's the official? Uh, what's the official series called? It's called Yale Jewish Lives. And so there have been problems yeah. on, for example, Sarah Yale Jewish Lives. Lives. And there are many others. We'll talk a little bit more about some of those lives. Some of them are unsurprising. Marx, of course, Moses. I don't think Freud is in it, but uh, mm-hmm. um, Kafka, many other Jewish think, lives. David, what is a Jewish life? Yeah, well, this is a question. I, many of the books in the series, I haven't read all the books in the series. I don't edit the series. I merely have written a book for it. But... Um, uh, many of the books, a fair number, are about Jews who uh, don't seem especially quote-unquote Jewish. Uh, uh, you know, so, I mean, there's always something, but uh, there's not necessarily a lot uh, to, to link them to this identity. Uh, with Kubrick, the connection is very interesting. I mean, he always, uh, you know, he knew he was a Jew. He always felt that way. And he planned to make a movie about the Holocaust, in fact. And it's, uh, it was to have been based on a, on a great novel by the Holocaust survivor Louis Begley uh, called uh, Wartime Lies. And it's about Louis mm. Begley pretending. Actually, be- interesting, in the Jewish Live series, Yale, uh, uh, Primo Levi is, is included. I think he's the only yes. Italian Jew. So uh, uh, I didn't know that about Kubrick, that he was planning to do a Holocaust movie. And yeah, that would have yeah. been at a time pre-Spielberg when Holocaust movies weren't particularly fashionable. Yeah, he called off the movie, in fact, because he was friends with Spielberg and he found out that Spielberg was making Schindler's List. And that was his uh, perhaps primary motive for deciding not to do it. He had everything lined up, the sets, the actors, the costumes, uh, the script, uh, although the script was in a rough state. But all of Kubrick's movies, you know, the script developed as the movie developed during shooting. But um, he decided not to do it. Kubrick, uh, Spielberg was doing Schindler's List, but also was the sheer pressure of the subject, uh, you know, which was, uh, I think, frightening to, uh, to Kubrick. So, um, you know. Well, he, so did a, he did a satire of nuclear war, so he could have perhaps, perhaps it would have been more appropriate to do a satire of the Holocaust. That might have been 
Slightly. Yeah, if one could, if one could do that. But of course, the 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 movie uh, Doctor Strangelove, we don't actually see the mass deaths, right? Uh, at the end of the film, not to you know, spoiler alert, right? But uh, you know, the the doomsday machine goes off. We see various mushroom clouds, and you know, but of course, we don't see millions of people dying. But in a Holocaust movie, you can't you can't leave that out. So that was uh, that was one of the issues. Um, David, in the um, in the in the Jewish Lives Yale series, there are a number of um, movie lives. Uh, there's a whole book on on Warner Brothers, the, the the brothers who founded, of course, the Hollywood studio. There is, of course, a book on Steven Spielberg, uh, a a life in film, not a Jewish life, a life in film. There's something on Groucho Marx, who I guess is uh, most distinguished for his appearance in movies. Uh, something on Stan Lee, uh, an animator, one of the great animators. Barbara Streisland um, and Ben Heck, the uh, screenwriter. Do you think there's anything particularly Jewish about film and particularly American film? I mean, much of the industry was founded by Eastern Jews, uh, East Coast Jews who ended up in Los Angeles and Historically, Jews have played a, an outsized role in the industry. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question because, uh, you know, there's a famous book by Neil Gabler called An Empire of Their Own about, you know, as you point out, uh, the studios were most of them, most of them founded by, uh, uh, by uh, Jews from Eastern Europe. And, um, you know, there was only one major producer for a long time. That was Daryl Zanuck, who was a, who was a non-Jew. Um, and uh, he, he seemed quite Jewish to many people. I mean, he had assimilated himself to, uh, uh, to the manners of the other producers. But um, the question of whether Hollywood wa was quote unquote Jewish is a, is a kind of a vexed question. And I'm not sure what the answer is. It depends on, you know, how you want to think about it. But, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of people who talk about, for example, um, you know, Jewish humor in Hollywood comedies um is uh is uh you know is preston sturgis jewish humor well no i mean he was not jewish but uh you know i mean this is american humor as well so uh you know but but in soci in sociological terms it's certainly true that um you know that that jews uh played a, a dominant role in hollywood but 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 in terms of the medium you're a writer not just on film but on literature uh you're the author of another very well-received book, Bellow's People, How Saul Bellow Made Life into Art. Saul Bellow, of course, being another very distinguished, not just Jewish writer, but writer who played on his Jewishness. Um, is there something about the art of filmmaking, its eclectic nature, the fact that it, it's so impure that attracts, maybe not Jews, but immigrants, people displaced mm -hmm. from one culture? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a good case to be made for that, you know. I mean, this is a sort of improvised society, as, uh, you know, somebody said to uh, 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 Kubrick's uh, uh, collaborator, Jimmy Harris, said, you know, uh, this is what making a movie is about. Jimmy Harris was the, the producer for Kubrick's early movies. And uh, he said, you know, you get there in the morning and there are 300 people, all of them waiting to... To, to or jabbering, all of them wanting to ask you a question, you know, it's like you have to deal with hundreds of things at once. 
And, um, you know, the, the sort of the hustle and bustle of this, the topsy-turvy nature of this, you know, yeah, you need people who are comfortable in unfamiliar surroundings, unfamiliar situations, you know, who are, are you know, might have to, uh, who, who are, you know, might have to travel from one place to another, been displaced from one place to another. It all makes sense, that context. Uh, Kubrick said that making a movie was like writing War and Peace in a bumper car. And, uh, you know, you get that sense of he thought of his own achievements as as monumental. And indeed, they are, I argue, in the book. But also, you know, you have the bumper car aspect, which is, you know, there's a, sa- a thousand different things. that are, You come out very yeah. bruised. Um, <laughs> the subtitle, as I said, of the book, uh, Stanley Kubrick is American filmmaker. But he wasn't really an American filmmaker in the sense he spent most of his life out of America, particularly his creative life um, in in the United Kingdom. You know, you mentioned uh, A Clockwork Orange, which is the quintessential British film uh, based on Anthony Burgess's uh, remarkable book. Is he an American filmmaker? And if he is, how? Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, I intended the subtitle as a as a provocation. You know, I mean, Kubrick said uh, after he had uh, from the early '60s on, he he was making his movies in uh, in England. He never liked L.A. You know, he made. Well, who uh, does, David? Good point. Uh, I mean, I like it, but only as a visitor. And uh, you know, no, actually, uh, I I prefer it to San Francisco. I think it's more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always. Which isn't saying cool. much. <laughs> okay, no comment. But anyway, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, he, he didn't like LA, you know, he didn't like being under observation, you know, he didn't like going to these, you go to lunch and people are watching other people. He wanted to have his own domain. New York was too expensive to do that. So that left London. And the thing about London is you can make movies quite cheaply if a certain proportion of, uh, of your crew and your actors were uk citizens and so that's what he did he made lolita at the beginning of the 60s and then um you know the later movies were all were all filmed in london but kubrick said i think it's a great line uh you know he had eventually moved to an estate outside london chidwick Bree, a very large house uh, near st albans and uh kubrick said i don't feel as if i'm not living in america you know he had the new york times delivered every morning he had, uh, you know, tapes of the of foot, American football games flown to him across the Atlantic. And, uh, 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 you know, he always, uh, uh, you know, he always thought of himself as as the American in these uh, in these odd surroundings. He was so, clearly very close, though. To, I, I, one of the things I learned from some of your writing is he was pretty good friends with David Cornwall, the mm-hmm. uh, the real man behind John le Carré, of course. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the most famous actor in all his work is Peter Sellers, the mm-hmm. most brilliant of all English comic actors in the 20th century. Was he particularly attracted by Anglo culture, by Anglo writing, by Anglo acting? I, th- I think that's true. I do think that's true. And, you know, he loves Sellers. Um, you know, the well, decision- who doesn't love Sellers, David? Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, I agree completely. He's the most brilliant comic actor of the uh, uh, British comic actor of the 20th century. And uh, he first used him in Lolita. Is there any other comic acting? Oh, in Kubrick? No, in in the world, apart from British. 
Oh. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. Yeah, we don't that's, do That's badly. British humor for you, Dave. We Americans don't do too badly at comic acting. True. We? Well, we mentioned uh, Groucho <laughs> Marx, so absolutely. So, yeah, Clary Grant. I mean, you know, the, the whole tradition of screwball comedies. I mean, Hollywood has a has a wonderful... But, of course, you know, Sellers is a particular kind of what we would call shtick, which is, you know, I mean, he does routines. So, in the sense of being able to transfer a routine to a film, you know, I think Sellers did that more brilliantly than, and, and to develop routines in the course of, you know, uh, uh, developing his role in the film, Sellers did that uh, better than anyone else, I really think. And uh, so Kubrick, yeah, they, they bonded over their love of cameras and photography, for example. And as you said, he was friends with uh, David Cornwall. He adored uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell, who was, uh, you know, the lead in A Clockwork Orange. So, um, so yeah, he did, uh, you know, he did have close friends, but um, a lot of his relationships, Kubrick you know, would spend hours on the phone. Most of his relationships took place over the phone. With he seems as if Hollywood. he's a character who could have walked out of one of his own movies. Is that fair? Exactly. I guess that's always true. Same with Saul yeah. Bellow, so, same with so many great creative minds. Right, right. Like Ken Adam, for example, who uh, Ken Adam, who uh, was the brilliant set designer on Dr. Strangelove, the war room in Dr. Strangelove is one of the greatest sets of all time. So Ken Adam, uh, uh, who, who, who lived in London, he was a, a Jew from Berlin, but he uh, he lived in London and he said it was like a marriage, his friendship with Kubrick. You know, our conversations, he would call me up and no conversation was less than two hours long. So, um, uh, you know, and it, eventually it drove Ken Adam a bit crazy during the, the filming of Barry Lyndon. Uh, Adam had a nervous breakdown. He had to be carried off the set. And part of the reason was Kubrick's perfectionism. You know, he... He, he did the same with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman in, um, in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, we are talking, it's, it's, a, it's a, a fabulous conversation uh, with... Uh, uh, David Mikic, the author of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker. We're going to take a, a short break, uh, David, and then I want to come back and talk more specifically about uh, the Kubrick genre. I want to talk about uh, all, all the different movies. So stay with us, and we'll be back in about 90 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox, or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected 
uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back talking with uh, David Mikic, the author of Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker, one of America's great authorities on this great American filmmaker. Uh, David, there are so many films in the Kubrick canon. Um, and in comparison to other great filmmakers, Hitchcock or Fellini uh, or Tarkovsky, it, it always seems to me that I don't really understand what connects them all. They're so different. Everything from Barry Lyndon to um, to Doctor Strangelove to 2001 Space Odyssey. Is there a link or was he just a genius at making different kinds of films? There is a link, Andrew. It's a great question. And it's something I puzzled about when I started writing the book. And one of the, the most fun aspects of writing the book is that I, uh, I feel like I figured this out. So um, Kubrick, uh, the Kubrick universe is a, is a very tightly controlled universe. It's frequently, um, uh, uh, you know, there, there's some sort of secret society or, or governmental order or rigid social system that, uh, that masters people. And um, part of the question is, uh, you know, how the individual deals with that. Does the individual become the victim of it, the manipulator of it, the escapee from it? So we have, for example, in The Shining, um, the Overlook Hotel, uh, you know, is the, uh, is the prevailing power. We have the Secret Society in Eyes Wide Shut, his last film. Um, we have the Behavioral Control in Clockwork Orange. You know, we have the Aliens in 2001. We have the, uh, the War Planners in Dr. Strangelove. All of these, you know. And above all else, of course, we have bourgeois sexuality in Lolita. Yeah, a different movie, but Lolita, I'm glad you mentioned that because Lolita, I think for me, fits into several of the later movies, uh, The Shining, Barry Lyndon, and and finally, Eyes Wide Shut, because these are films about marriage. I mean, of course, Lolita and Humbert are not literally married. She becomes, she gets married later on. And it's a, it's a brilliant scene in which she spurns Humbert when Humbert shows up at uh, you know at the uh, the house of Lolita and her husband, but um, uh, many Kubrick films are about the relation between a man and a woman, and uh, the final one, Eyes Wide Shut, is a kind of answer to the earlier ones, I think, because all of those earlier ones, Lolita, The Shining, and Barry Lyndon depict failed marriages. Eyes Wide Shut is finally about a successful marriage, so that's another theme that runs through the films. Is that maybe where we can find the Jewishness in in um, in Kubrick? You had a you I, and you write a wonderful column for um, Tablet Magazine. There's this incredible headline uh, mm-hmm. that you wrote. Uh, I don't know if you wrote it or someone. No, else. no, but it's a good one. I didn't write uh, it. Kubrick, Kubrick's Cruise Kidman Schnitzler Sex Sizzler. That's about as good a headline as you're going to get today. <laughs> 
And of course, it's built around the fact that uh, his movie, Eyes Wide Shut, was borrowed from the Viennese dramatist Arthur Schnitzler, deeply, and again, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm accurate here, deeply Freudian writer, or certainly coming out of that Freudian world. You've talked about family and marriage and repression and going up against convention. Is there something Freudian about Kubrick? Oh, definitely. I would say, you know, certainly in that final movie. Yes, Freud greatly admired Schnitzler's work. Uh, Schnitzler was... I thought you were going to say Freud greatly admired uh, Kubrick, which might have perhaps been... He would have, perhaps he wouldn't have. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell. <laughs> but, but at any rate, he did like Schnitzler. And, uh, uh, you know, Schnitzler who wrote... Kubrick actually was obsessed with Schnitzler's novella called Dream Story for about 40 years before he made Eyes Wide Shut. And his interest in it had a lot to do with his marriage. Uh, you know, he was married for the final 40 years of his life uh, uh, to Christiana Harlan uh, and uh, Christiana Kubrick, a wonderful woman who I interviewed for the, for the book. And so um, the story of Eyes Wide Shut is, is somehow the story of their marriage, which is not to say that Kubrick did the things that Tom Cruise does or had those adventures, you know, I mean, it's fictional. But uh, in terms of the dream life, I think there's a very, very close resemblance. And there's also a, a strong sort of sexual confessionalism about that film and presumably about Kubrick himself. I think that's true. I mean, in terms of his actual life, he was remarkably, I mean, he busied himself with filmmaking and then also with his family. He, he very rarely left, uh, you know, the house. And he, he, uh, he, had, he had three daughters and he... Uh, he wanted them to stay in this house as long as possible, you know. I mean, one of them announced that she was going to get married, and he was like, what are you doing to me? So, um, you know, he was very yeah, much, That's a Jewish father, isn't it, David? Very much, yeah, very much so, right? And so he wanted, he wanted the family to be around at every moment, and also all the dogs and cats. And, uh, you know, a very home-based person. Um, you know, but the, this idea of, uh, of, of leaving home of of some adventure uh yeah as a poss as a sort of unconscious possibility you know definitely haunted him would it be fair to describe 2001 a space odyssey and barry linden as the the bookends of his creative output they are so profoundly different on so many levels and everything else in between mm -hmm. i they really are that's a fascinating idea because uh you know, 2001, which knocked me out when I first saw it. I was, it was about eight. Does it still old. knock you out? I have to admit, of all the films, I find it the most, uh, the least interesting, the most oh. predictable now. No, I, I've seen it. Well, it, it depends on how you see it, because the last time I saw it, I saw it in IMAX, which, uh, you know, you feel like you're hanging off the edge of space. I mean, it's, uh, it's a stunning achievement. And, uh, you know, I still find it to be, as the early posters said, the ultimate trip. This was, you know, the famous yeah. slogan of the movie posters. But, uh, but in any case, it's a very spare movie. It's sublime, but also very spare. We really get a sense of the, the endlessness and the emptiness of space. And, you know, there's a kind of uh, rhapsodic, but also very kind of desert-like feeling but it created the, 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 the sort of the fetishization, the cult of space, which I'm guessing people like Bezos and Musk grew up on, which is why they want to invest so much of their wealth now in conquering it. 
Yeah, quite possibly, quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, before before Kubrick, before 2001 science fiction movies, I mean, there were some interesting ones, but in general, they looked cheap. You know, they yeah. did not look otherworldly. They did not look sublime, you know, far from it. So the music was good too, wasn't it? Well, Sorry? It's good. The music is good in it too. Well, yeah, the music is, uh, I mean, it's just a stunning decision on his part to use uh, the Strauss uh, uh, Blue Danube and to use this avant-garde music by Ligeti. Um, but yeah, Barry Lyndon, to go back to your question, is, yeah. uh, you know, it's a very richly textured movie, a very painterly movie. He imitates paintings by Gainsborough, by Constable, by Hogarth in the course of the movie. And it's a sort of sumptuous, I mean, although it is like, 2001, a very slow-moving film, you know, so there's something very ritualistic about both of those films. But in terms of uh, the density of the social landscape, yeah, they certainly are opposites. Barry Lyndon, it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you saw them back-to-back -back and you didn't know they were made by this by Kubrick, I think very few people could guess that they were made by the same individual. Um, David, a couple of Silly questions, which you probably will pass on, but I'm going to throw them at you anyway. We had David Thompson on the show, the great Anglo-American film historian. He lives in San Francisco, too. Last year, we talked about great movies, great filmmakers. Where does Kubrick fit in to the pantheon of American filmmakers? Is he at the top? Is he the top ranked? I would place him up there, although, you know, Kubrick made only 13 films, and so... But I think they are at least a dozen of them are 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 great films. Six of them are very great films. I would rank him near the top. I mean, with Hitchcock, Wells, Ford, Hawks. Uh, who else is there to rank at the top? Spielberg, I, mean, I guess. Possibly. I mean, I, I would put Spielberg a bit lower. But yeah, um, David Thompson, I think, is less fond of uh, of Kubrick. I admire David. Thompson doesn't. Thompson doesn't like Hitchcock. Uh, yeah, so that's he prefers Wells to Hitchcock. But then Wales is, you know, his whole reputation is built on two or three, maybe just one film. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know, I mean, there are problems with the making of the movies in Wells's case. Uh, Kubrick uh, uh, surmounted that problem, you know, seemingly effortlessly. <laughs> you know, he had was he good at schmoozing? He doesn't seem to be the kind of guy who would have been good at schmoozing with studio chiefs but he must have done it pretty well to get the financing for his films in contrast with wells yeah he did it he he did it he could talk forever you know and he could uh you know he he, he could play that game very well and for him the point was to convince people to let him do what he wanted and uh you know last half of his career was with warner brothers and the guys at warner brothers loved him and they let him do what he wanted because they knew he was a great artist and they also knew his films were relatively... Well, they were Jewish, too. They're in the series. The yes, that's true. Yeah, Maybe of our, there was... Uh... I mean, I'm talking about later executives, like John yeah. Halley, for example, and uh, Terry Semmel. But uh, they loved Kubrick, and they, they knew his films were relatively inexpensive. He had small crews. And uh, his films all made money. Even Barry Lyndon made money, eventually, worldwide. So uh, Kubrick was a steady, you know, was a steady Do you think money he would have been angry, pissed off, or just indifferent to our superhero movie culture today? Yeah, I don't think he would have liked CGI. I mean, I, I have mixed feelings since I, I see a lot of these films or a fair number of them. Well, you got kids I mean, like me. We have to. We can't avoid yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. That's the reason.
But I mean, I'm an admirer of two of the recent series, uh, WandaVision and Loki. And um, but but I feel like I want to excise the the extended CGI fight sequences from the films. You know, for me, that's a distraction, you know. Uh, so there are interesting things in the Marvel Universe, but those things are not, you know, I, what I guess many fans go to it for. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think he would have been he would have been quite disappointed. Um, by the, it's interesting to think about the movie makers that Kubrick did like. Frequently, he liked movie makers that were very different from him. Um, you know, like Claudia Weil, who made the movie Girlfriends, you know, very sort of casual, intimate, small scale film and uh, nothing at all like Kubrick's work. Finally, David, um, as I said, uh, you also wrote Bellows People, how Saul Bellow made life into art. I mean, Perhaps it's Jewish life into Jewish art. Um, what about his contribution as a Jew, Kubrick? Oh, Kubrick? Well, you know, I mean, I think he would have recoiled at that at that way of putting it, uh, rightly or wrongly. But, well, you know, I, I mean, he, and, I, and I ask because of the series. Oh, because of the series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so I it, mean it, as a Jewish it, life. Right. How Jewish was his life would be another way of putting it. And, uh, you know, his wife, Christiane, and their daughter is always, you know, Christiane, uh, who is German. And in fact, her, her uncle was a famous uh, Nazi era filmmaker, Veit Harlan. That's a story in itself, which we don't have time to get into. But uh, Christiane said, we always sort of, as, as Stanley as being like Tevye the milkman, we would make jokes about him because he would roll his eyes and look up, look up to the sky with a look of accusation and melancholy. And, you know, clutch his heart and go, oh, you know, so, uh, you know, he had many of those gestures. He was from that world. And, you know, he grew up uh, in the East Bronx. Um, uh, he did uh, make life into art, too, didn't he? Like Bella. Yes, yes. Uh, that, that's certainly the case. And, you know, you could think of the Irish upstart Barry Lyndon as being somehow the equivalent of a Jewish outsider, if you like. Uh um, but you know, so there are some uh, there are some of those motifs in the uh, in the. Well, I, I hope David. Um, it, it, it's a lovely book, um, Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker. I'm going to go back to Barry Lyndon. I'm going to go back to Lolita and Clockwork Orange. They're films I watched many years ago. I need to remind myself, and I'm not going to watch 2001: Space Odyssey <laughs> again because I found that too boring. It's an airline film if you want to fall asleep. Uh, in my view, probably not very popular. Um, David, in addition, though, to your, your book on uh, Kubrick and your book on Bella, what else should be, people be reading these days? What are you reading? What have you read? What are you suggesting? You, I know you, you're, you're, you're talking to me from Brooklyn. You, you, teach, uh, you teach at Columbia. You teach also in Texas. So, yeah, I do, I do a few things for Columbia, but basically I teach at the University of Houston, which is in Texas. Um, but yeah, so I can't tell people what they should read, but I can say what I have been reading. And, you know, I always think, Andrew, it's the ultimate tribute to a book when you finish it and you feel like starting it again. Yeah. So this happened to me recently. It's a book that I had not read for 40 years. I read it in a class when it came out in 1979. And this was uh, The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer. So um, I picked it up a few months ago. Mm. It's a thousand page book, but it's you cannot put it down. Hey. Yeah, in the age of Harvey Weinstein, he's not perhaps the most fashionable of characters, is he? Yeah, I mean, Mailer certainly had his, uh, you know, well, he had his uh, terrible uh, event, you know, he stabbed his wife 
and spent three weeks in Bellevue, you know, the uh, hospital for the insane. Um, and, uh, you know, he, uh, he dealt with that. And, and of course, more seriously, she dealt with it for the rest of their lives. But, um, but, uh, in terms of, I, I mean, it, Dave Eggers, who wrote the introduction to the new edition of, yeah, and Dave Eggers, uh, was on my show. Oh, okay. Ago, so. yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So, yeah, I mean, Eggers says, you know, just forget, don't even think about who wrote the book. And in fact, Mailer um, doesn't appear at all as a character in the book. And it's a sort of, you know, in many ways, Tolstoy-like depiction of hundreds of characters, not just the main characters who are both fascinating, the murderer, Gary Gilmore, and uh, Nicole Baker, his girlfriend. It's, uh, as Mailer called it, a true life novel. So, well, um, it's a good suggestion, David. Um, you are the author. I think it came out last year. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, American filmmaker. It's in the Jewish Lives series, Yale University Press. You working on anything at the moment? Book on Mailer? Yeah, I'm thinking of that. <laughs> Good. Well, you have to come back on the show. And yes, next yes. time you you write a book or, or, or actually uh, people should, should, should follow you on Tablet, mm -hmm. excellent uh, online magazine focusing on Jewish themes and issues. David Mikic, author of Stanley Kubrick, an Amer American filmmaker. Thank you so much, David. Real honor. And uh, we will... Definitely talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. This was a lot of fun and look forward to coming back. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms, all major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of of people with interesting new books and projects which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.